We're in the Luke travel narrative. We are in the call of the kingdom to Israel. Starts off in Luke 13, verses 1 through 9. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, I will tell you quite frankly, nobody has any idea what that means. All sorts of speculation as to what it was, but there are no references to it that I can find other than right here. So nobody has any idea what happened. Verse 2, and he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What's going on here is they're saying that these Galileans died because of their sins. And sort of in parentheses, that's not us. If you remember your studies in the book of Job, one of the things that Job's false friends continually do with him is say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, all this suffering that you're going through must mean that you have sinned somewhere. And Job keeps saying, I haven't. And they keep saying, but you must, because look at all this stuff that's happening to you. So if you read this conversation in that context, what the people who mention the Galileans are really doing is they are justifying themselves by comparison to these sinners who died because Pilate clobbered them. And so what Yeshua is saying is, no, that isn't why they died. And if you guys don't repent, the same thing is going to happen to you. And he'll say this twice in two contexts. So the first one is in the context of the Galileans. And then in verse 4, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And again, I don't know of anybody that has any idea what happened at Siloam. You know, I mean, what the particular incident he's talking about is. It's, it, obviously, it's known to everybody there, but it didn't make it into any of the text that we have available to us. But again, the idea is, rather than comparing yourself to other people who have suffered bad ends and thinking in your mind, gee, we haven't suffered a bad end, therefore we're okay. And what he's saying is, no, you guys need to repent or the same thing is going to happen to you. And then we go into the parable of the barren fig tree which is in verse 6. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put in manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. If not, you can cut it down. Now, this is all in the context of Israel. So he's really talking about the leadership of Israel here. And he's not yet in Jerusalem, because we haven't done the triumphal entry yet. He's on his way to Jerusalem, which means he's going through small farm towns. The image he's creating here with his parable is that the leadership in Israel is unfruitful, and what they really need is manure packed around their feet. 
that would have been one of those things that a farming community would find clever. I'm not saying it's not clever, but the audience he's talking to is probably an agricultural community. And the image there of all of these fine, upstanding church people standing around getting manure packed on their feet would be something that a country crowd would appreciate. And the obvious message there is that Israel has become unfruitful and they are being given another chance. Because remember, what does he do when he starts his ministry? He goes out and he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he is functioning in the office of an Old Testament prophet. He's coming through town and he's telling Israel, you guys need to repent. That's his message for three and a half years. When a prophet comes through town, two things. First off, a prophet does not come through your town if you're doing a good job. If you're living the way God wants you to live, you don't get a Jeremiah coming through your town preaching. You don't get an Isaiah coming through your town preaching. You don't get a Jonah coming through your town preaching if you're doing a good job. So having an Old Testament prophet come through your town and say repent is an indication that you've got problems. That's sort of thing one. The office of a prophet is someone that God picks and he says, all right, you're going to be my messenger to Israel. I want you to go and I want you to deliver this message to the nation. So what we're talking about here is an Old Testament prophet in that sense who is coming through Israel and the idea of a prophet is the prophecy does not have to come true. In fact, a prophecy that comes true has failed. Jonah being a perfect example. Jonah goes through Nineveh and says, yet 40 days and Nineveh is going to be destroyed. And all of Nineveh put on sackcloth and ashes and repented, and the prophecy did not come to pass. So the purpose of a prophecy is to give you fair warning that this is what's going to happen. The ideal situation is you're going to listen to the prophet, you're going to make changes, you're going to get your act together again, and the prophecy will not come to pass. So the message of a prophet is, this is what you're doing wrong. Stop it, repent, return to God, do the right thing, and if you don't, this is what's going to happen. And in the cases of the big prophets that make it into the Bible, people typically don't. They don't do what the prophet says to do. So then the thing that the prophet prophesies does come to pass. But understand that from God's point of view, that's a failure. Because what he really wants is to get people to change the way they're doing stuff and become the nation that he wants them to be. One of the things that we have in our Gentile Christian minds is this idea that prophecies from God are yea and amen and they're going to come to pass. And that's not true. So anyway, the, the, the whole point of this parable of the fig tree is what Yeshua is saying in a humorous way to probably an agricultural audience is first off, the leadership of Israel needs to repent and start producing fruit because I'm seeing them and I'm seeing no fruit. Then they get a reprieve. The gardener, who is who? Yeshua is the gardener. And he says to his father, hang on a second, let me pack some manure around their feet and let's wait a year and see if we can get them to bear fruit. So what's the manure he's packing around their feet? He's going through and he is speaking the word. He is speaking the gospel. 
So that's by way of getting their attention, and as I say, in a metaphorical sense, packing some manure around their feet to see if they can get them to blossom and produce some fruit. So now we're going to go over to Luke 14. In Luke 13, the call was to Israel. The call now spreads, and it's also to the outcasts. And it starts in verse 12, but you need to go back to the beginning of 14 to get context. And I'll just read the context, and then we'll skip down to 12, and then next time we'll clean up and pick up the parable of the wedding feast. Luke 14, verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. So what they're doing is, just like the lawyer who was asking, what shall I do to inherit eternal life, just like a messianic wandering into a group full of Baptists, everybody starts asking them, well, what do you think? What do you think about dietary laws, which is a real common one that you get when you say you're a messianic and you get among a group of Baptists or evangelicals or typical Sunday Christians. Basically, they're trying to figure out, A, what you believe, and B, they're trying to balance what you believe against what they believed, and the idea is you're wrong. And you're now in a position where you need to justify yourself to them because coming into that group as a non-member, you are sort of assumed to be in error and they're trying to figure out what it is that you think so that they can set you straight. Now we'll go down to verse 12. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. So when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. We have been talking in Musar about generosity, and the idea is that generosity is not tithing, when you tithe and give offerings and so forth, you are not being generous. You are simply doing what's commanded. No generosity involved there. Generosity occurs when you give to someone out of your heart with no expectation of any return. And the purest form of generosity is when there is no possibility of return. And so one of the things that the Musar masters say is that the purest form of generosity is burying the dead because there's no way they can pay you back. And there's no way that you can have sort of tucked in the back of your mind, well, if I do this, I'll get paid back somehow. Corpse can't do that. Sort of next up is visiting the sick, giving to beggars, all people who can't help you. So what Yeshua is saying here is, hey guys, inviting people over to your house for dinner is not generosity if the people that you invite are of your same social class and it's sort of assumed that you're going to get invited to their house at some time in the future. The only thing that counts as generosity in this case is if you go out and you invite in the poor and the lame and so forth, people who cannot possibly repay you, then you're being generous. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. One of the things that is in Proverbs is money given to the poor is lent to God. He will repay. So the idea that generosity that you extend to someone who cannot repay you becomes then a debt to you from God. 
And what Yeshua is saying here is you may not get that repaid until the resurrection, but it's recorded. Understand that if it were guaranteed to be repaid in this life, you would have impure motives in your generosity. Because if I give to this bum here, I know that I'm going to get it back over here from God. So I can give to the bum and feel good about myself and puff my chest up and look really righteous in front of everybody, but I know it isn't really ultimately going to cost me anything. And so what Yeshua is saying is, yeah, it isn't going to cost you anything, but you may not see it in this lifetime. Verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, okay, now, the but he said is, I'm not agreeing with you. So, first off, who is the guy that is speaking? Somebody who is reclining around the table is going to be of the same social class as the Pharisee who invited him. It is my understanding that in this society, they would eat in an open courtyard. And people were welcome to sort of gather around the edge to listen to the conversation. But the ones who really counted were the ones who were reclining at table. They were the ones that were eating and getting their feet washed and all that kind of stuff. So the guy who's making this comment is of the same social class as the Pharisee who is the host of lunch or whatever it is. You sort of get the impression that he is saying this with the expectation that Yeshua is going to say, right, good for you, you really understand. He does not get that. So the construct here is, but he said, which is to say, he is saying this in disagreement with what the Pharisee just said. So now we're in verse 16. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. Most of you know this, but I'll go over it quickly. There's no refrigeration in biblical times. You store meat on the hoof. So when somebody is planning a feast, he slaughters an animal appropriate in size to the number of guests. So if it's just four of us at the dinner table, we'll kill a chicken. We get up to six or eight of us, we may do a goat. More than that, we may do a sheep. Big party inviting the whole town, we'll do a calf or a cow. So before you kill your animal, you get RSVPs from everybody you're inviting. So you know who you expect to have show up before you kill the animal. So everybody in here has accepted the invitation. The master of the feast has counted them up, and we don't know what kind of an animal has been slaughtered here. I mean, it it could be a sheep, certainly a sheep or a calf, if it's a great feast. You wouldn't do a chicken for a great feast. So it's a significant animal that's been slaughtered. It's slaughtered, prepared, ready to eat, and then he sends out to the guests saying, okay, now supper's ready, time for supper. And he expects everybody to show up because they have agreed to show up. That's sort of thing one. Thing two is all of the excuses that we're about to hear are lies. Not only are they lies, but they are in-your-face lies. So what the people are saying who are going to offer these excuses is, I know I said I was going to come. I'm not going to come. 
And here's this transparent lying excuse of why you should excuse me. Everybody listening to the story knows that these are lies. Everybody listening to the story knows what's going on here. This is all really obvious to everybody who's listening. Oh, and one other thing. A feast of this size in a village is a major event. So if somebody is going to throw a feast that's going to involve the slaughtering of a sheep or better, what he's going to do is coordinate with everybody else so that nobody in his social circle is planning, for example, a wedding on the same day. He sent out a save-the-day card, you know, I'm planning to have a feast for whatever reason on this day, and it would be a gross breach of etiquette for somebody then to schedule a wedding that conflicted with this feast. I mean, it's just an absolute in-your-face, I don't care about you, you're no importance to me, and I'm insulting you in public. That's the level of thing that is going on here. I'm standing up here and I'm insulting you in public. Verse 18, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. So you have this polite form, which is please have me excused, while he's flipping the bird with the other hand. Sort of like when you listen to debates in the Senate, my esteemed colleague is a lying, low-down snake that I wouldn't trust with my wife in a 7-Eleven or Motel 6 or whatever. But it's always my esteemed colleague from the state of wherever said, you know, but what's really going on is something entirely different. So the first one is buying a field. Where's the first purchase of a field in Scripture? The Cave of Machpelah by Abraham. And if you go back there and read the deed, they lay out the streams, the trees, everything in that piece of land is itemized on the deed. So everybody knows. So I'm buying a piece of land and it's got timber on it. Timber belong to me or does the timber belong to you? It's listed in the deed. We've got water running through the property. The water rights belong to me or do they belong to you? That's listed in the deed. So every aspect of that land is listed in the deed and a negotiation over a piece of land is something that may take months just like it does in the United States today. How long does it take from the time you decide to buy a piece of land until you finally take possession? At least 30 days. And it was no different there. So the idea that on the spur of the moment this guy has just bought a piece of land and I got to go see it is absurd on its face. As I say, everybody listening to the story would know this. That's the whole point of this story. Verse 19. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Again, in this particular part of the world at that time, if you were buying a yoke of oxen near you know, the sale lot, there would be a place that you would be able to yoke them up and see if they pull together and all that kind of stuff. There'd be a test patch of ground. And you'd take them out and you'd yoke them up and you'd see if they pull together and, and if they're well matched and all that kind of stuff. You'd do all of that before you buy them. You would not buy five yokes of oxen and then say, well, I got to go see what I got. A yoke of oxen is a far more significant purchase in this area than a mere used car is here and you wouldn't buy one side unseen. Verse 20, and another said, I have married a wife and therefore cannot come. Notice that he doesn't even ask to be excused. 
the other two guys have said, I've done this, please excuse me. This guy just says, I've married a wife and I'm not coming. No pleasantries, no smile as he flips him the bird, nothing. As I said leading off in this, the idea that somebody would schedule a wedding in conflict with a major feast in the village is absurd. Like everything else in the Middle East and in the United States here, it would be very, very poor form if one of your kids went to work one morning and came back married. It's just absurd. You wouldn't accept that from a kid, and so this guy's excuse is just obviously completely transparent and completely in the face. You cannot imagine somebody who is a friend or an associate of a powerful man in the village, someone who's powerful enough to throw a party of this size, treating him that way. And that's the whole point of the story. It is so obviously transparent that they are just sticking their finger in his eye and they are doing it publicly and they are insulting him publicly. That's the whole point of this. Is nobody can imagine anybody actually doing this. 21. So the servant came and reporting these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. So became angry is an understatement. As I say, he has been publicly insulted. So he says, fine, I want you to go out and I want you to bring in people who were not originally invited. People of a different social class. Verse 22, and the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. So they have rounded up every narrative well that they can find and there's still space left, which is an indicator of the size of the feast. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Something cultural here, compel to come. This has been misinterpreted in the past in churchianity to allow forced conversions. So there have been times in the history of the church where a militant church has gone out and forcibly converted Jews, pagans, whatever, you know, convert or die kind of a thing. And very often the place that they go to justify that is compel them to come. As I am understand society, let's say that you are a stranger walking down the road, don't know this guy, and his servant comes up and says, Sir, you're passing by. Come on in here and enjoy our feast. You are expected to refuse politely. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. It's wonderful, but I got watermelons I got to deliver. And gee, that was really nice of you to ask, but no thank you. And you know, very flowery, but you're expected to refuse because it is assumed that the invitation is just polite and pro forma. The great man is saying to everybody, y'all come. But the ones that aren't really invited are expected to say, oh, well, thank you so much for inviting me, but I really can't. So the great man looks magnanimous for inviting everybody, and the people who are invited but are not expected to come then can politely say, great honor that you thought of me, sir, but no thank you right now. And just the original guest list shows up. If the invitation is truly sincere, 
and you really want the guy to come as opposed to pro forma, you all come kind of a thing. What you do is you walk up to him and you grab him by the arm and just sort of put your arm around him and say, yeah, come on. Not as in, but it's, you know, a gentle, put your hand through his arm and say, no, no, I really mean it. Come on, now let's go. That's what was being talked about here. Verse 24, for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So the question then becomes, in context, who is he talking about? I am going to go outside of my community, which in this context would be Israel, and I'm going to bring everybody in. Those who have been invited is Israel. They're the original invitees. And, of course, we know that a lot of Israel will be in, but there's going to be a bunch that think they are in because they're Israel that are not. God's intention and design has always been that everybody comes in. And it was initially Israel's mission to be the ones on the earth that preached God's message, which they've done. I mean, they spread the Torah all over the world. So the idea that Gentiles would come in is, I think, always been part of the plan. I guess I'd say two things. One of the things that we get confused about is who's in the kingdom. And I think that confusion is natural. You remember in Ephesians chapter 3 where it says that there's a mystery that has been known only to God. And that mystery is that Gentiles will become fellow heirs. And then in 1 Corinthians 2, it says that there's a mystery, and if the powers and principalities had understood the mystery, they would not have crucified Yeshua. So the idea that Yeshua's crucifixion allows the Gentiles to come in is something that was not known to the rebel angels in heaven. And if it was not known to them, it is very reasonable for us to be confused about it reading Scripture. Because one of the things that always gets Jews, Gentiles, church, non-church, all wrapped around the axle is who's Israel and what portion of the Gentiles play. And I'm suggesting to you that as you read Scripture, in some cases that's ambiguous. And it's ambiguous precisely because it was a mystery that God kept for himself because if he had made it known clearly, then the principalities and powers would never have crucified Yeshua. The fact that we can argue about who we're talking about here and who's this and who's that, I think is very natural. And it doesn't bother me that I read one passage of Scripture and it looks like this, and I read another passage of Scripture and it looks like that. It's like going back and reading Isaiah. If you're a rabbinic Jew, you read Isaiah and you see one thing. And if you're a Christian, you read Isaiah and you see something completely different. I think that's by design. And it doesn't bother me a bit. Let's finish up the chapter and we'll quit. I'm now on verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You all know, I'm sure, that Hate is not talking about hatred in a strong emotional sense. It is simply a preference. If you do not put me before your earthly relations, then you're not worthy to be my disciple. Because elsewhere in Scripture, he says, honor your father and your mother and so forth. So the idea is, this is by way of preference. Verse 27, 
Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. And the idea here is, one of the things that happened, he's a very popular preacher, very charismatic guy. I mean, he's God, right? So lots of people follow him. Yet there comes a watershed. And anybody remember what the watershed is? You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And at that point, all of the groupies, if you will, split off. One of the primary commandments in Judaism is you shall not eat blood with the meat. So the idea of eating my flesh and drinking my blood in that context is, whoa, this guy is anti-Moses. And so all the strap hangers at that point split off because they were offended. Before that, he has hundreds of disciples. That's sort of the dividing line is when he makes that statement, it then immediately winnows down to 12. Verse 31. Or what king, going out to encounter another king at war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The idea here is he's simply saying, I've got all you strap hangers, all you groupies, because he's got great crowds accompanying him. That's what the verse 25 said. You know, he's got a great crowd. So this is before it goes down from hundreds to twelve. And what he's saying to all these people who are following him sincerely, I think, is, hey, if we're going to go on from here, you folks need to make a choice about who I am. And you need to count the cost. And the cost is going to be perhaps your family, and perhaps your life. Verse 34. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And I am not sure why this is in there at that point. I don't have any great insight into that. I don't quite frankly know how salt can lose its saltiness. So I'm not sure why that's in there, quite frankly. Now what we're going to do next is we're going to go through things lost and found. And we'll start with the sheep, and then we'll go to the coin, and then the prodigal son. And the idea here is, starts off with 100 to 1, then it goes to 10 to 1, then it goes to 2 to 1. So it's narrowing down, and as it narrows down, it gets more and more valuable. We'll go through those next time. Shama